God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of a sinful man. And then as for sin, He condemned it in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of Torah might be fully met in us who live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What Torah was unable to do, the life that it was unable to bring to us because it got hijacked by sin, God satisfied all the righteous requirements of Torah through the one man who could fulfill its righteous requirements. And so, through his death, he gathered in his own flesh all of the righteous penalties that came with the violation of Torah. And in so doing, God condemned sin in the flesh, not in ours where it rightly would have been, but in the flesh of His Son, Jesus Christ. So that we, who otherwise would have absolutely no way of standing righteous before God, so that we might be able to do that in order that the righteous requirements of Torah might be fully met in us. We're not just getting a pass. We're not being graded on a curve. God's not saying good enough. He is saying that the righteous requirements of Torah are fully met in us. Not because of anything we've done, that's for sure. But because we are in Christ. Because we live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul reminds us that those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who are governed by the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. The mind of the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. It can't. Those who are controlled by the flesh can't please God, but you aren't controlled by the flesh, Paul says. You are controlled by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And as we talked about the other week, in this part of Romans, you can put, and it does, after just about everything Paul says. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and it does, you're not controlled by the flesh, but you're governed by the Spirit. If anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ, but you do. If Christ is in you, and He is, your body's dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. That word mortal is derived from a word that means death, your bodies that would be dying, that are going to die, that are subject to the just death penalty that God has allowed us to bring on ourselves, those mortal bodies, Paul says, will be given life through the Spirit who lives in us. And how can we believe that? Well, he was able to raise Christ from the dead. Christ who bore all of our sin. And if he 
can raise Christ from the dead, then surely we are not a burden too heavy for Him to lift. And so in light of all of this, Paul says, my brothers and sisters, we are under obligation. We are indebted. We we have to satisfy a responsibility, but that responsibility isn't to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We don't owe a damn thing to our sinful nature, Paul says. We don't owe a thing to it. See, if we live according to it, we're going to die. But if by the Spirit we put to death the misdeeds of the body, then we will live. As we talked about last week, there is a, an eternal dimension to that that we'll talk about today, but it, eternity by definition is something, if it stretches out to the future, that it includes now as well, right? One of the things that I appreciated so much about Dallas Willard's work was he talked about the reality of eternal life. We often think of eternal life as something that happens later. And he says, no, eternal life is something that begins now. He says, when Jesus talks about coming to bring us eternal life, he doesn't say, I'm coming so that you can just sort of muck about for now, and then eventually it's all going to be really good, and we're all going to sit on a cloud and, you know, play harps and stuff. No, he says, I'm going to bring the life that will one day be yours in full. I'm going to give you the beginnings of it now. You're going to begin living that eternal kind of life now. You don't have to wait for that. That's something we get to start living now. And there's a sense in which leading up to chapter 8, Paul has sort of, it's almost like there's been a, a piece of his of his argument that he has left deliberately missing so that we would ask, well, how does that work, right? I mean, you talk about how, he he talked back in in chapter 6 about how we're no longer slaves to sin, right? We're no longer enslaved to the master that abused us. We don't have to live like that anymore. Now you get to live differently. And you say, okay, well, how? In chapter 7, Paul says, you know, it's, it really was tough, you know, because I, I do what I don't want to do, and, and wh- what I want to do, I end up not doing. It kind of sucks being me. Who's going to rescue me from this? This is, this is tough. Well, in chapter 8, he's giving us the answer. It's the Spirit. It is the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us that enables us to begin living the eternal kind of life. It is those who are led by the Spirit of God, Paul says, who are the sons and daughters of God. We didn't receive a spirit to make us slaves again to fear, but we received the spirit of sonship or adoption. By him we cry, Abba, Father. Like Jesus, we can cry out to the Father as a child calls to a father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we're children, then we're heirs. 
We're heirs of God, and we are joint heirs with Christ. Indeed, we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. Those who are led by the Spirit are children, and if children, then logically they're heirs. And if we're heirs of the Father and if Christ is the Father's Son, then we are somehow joint heirs with our Lord Jesus Christ. We share in His sufferings, and we will also share in His glory. But you might ask, when Paul talks about those who are being led by the Spirit, just where are we being led? I think Paul there is evoking some of the most vivid passages of the Old Testament. Perhaps the best known, speaking of death, if you've been to a funeral lately, usually Psalm 23 gets read, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. My seminary professor referred to this as David's advertisement for God. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. This is my God. Yahweh is my shepherd. He leads me. He guides me, and He's there all the way. This is not a, a distant boss giving you directions as to where you go next. This is an intimate, close, personal guide. And the picture we get in Psalm 23 is of, of the good life, leading me beside still waters. And you get two types of water in, in the Old Testament, right? You get the raging, foaming seas that represents death, represents chaos, destruction. But then you get waters that are pleasant, still, quiet waters, rivers, streams, flowing waters. It's the kind of water that brings life nourishes the crops that are growing. The Spirit leads us, David is saying there, to the good life. It always happens. You start talking about flowing waters and then somebody's got to step out. I'm serious. Every time. God leads us in the good life. Even when it seems hard, He is protecting us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, You are with me. But there's something a little more dramatic about the other kind of leading that I think Paul may be evoking here, which is the leading that the Spirit did for the people of Israel in the Exodus. You'll remember 
back in Exodus after the plagues, after the Pharaoh was unwilling to let the people go and God finally rescued them out of there. By day, Yahweh went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of the cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then you find after they had constructed the tabernacle, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Moses couldn't even enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it. The glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And in all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. If the cloud didn't lift, they stayed put until the day it was lifted. And so the cloud of Yahweh was over the tabernacle by day, fire in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel during all of their travels. God led His people. But I was reminded as I was doing some text study, some interfaith text study with some friends last month, that this was not necessarily uncontroversial. There were, if you'll remember from the Exodus account, there were plenty of people who complained about where God was leading them. They're frankly complaining that He even led them out at all. They say, hey, weren't things better in Egypt? Objectively speaking, probably not. You were a slave. But if you're considering the prospect of being killed or starving to death in the desert, I mean, if Egypt's what you know, if you've been a slave after generation after generation after generation of slaves going all the way back, maybe you've gotten used to living like when, Paul, when God leads His people out of the desert, or out of, out, of the, out of Egypt into the desert, He tells them, here's the deal. I'm going to lead you into the land that I've promised you, and I'm going to give you my Torah, and if you live by my Torah, then you will have peace, and you will have prosperity, you will have happiness. Your society will be just. It is going to be a living advertisement for who I am and how good I am to my people. And if you don't, then you're going to die. The land is going to vomit you out. You will be miserable. All the blessings that could have been yours, you will forfeit. You notice that he doesn't give them a third option. He doesn't say, or you can take the consolation prize, get $1,000 in the home game. He doesn't say that. He says, you can either choose life or you can choose death, but I'm not giving you the option of going back to Egypt. You know, it was interesting as I was talking with my friends about them. Some of them thought this was kind of a raw deal. Some of them felt like it was kind of unfair that God uprooted the people and he told them, all right, I'm going to bring you someplace else and I'm not going to let you go back to where you were. 
And it occurred to me that he, after all, is God, so he can do that. Would you agree? The fact that the Lowe's is being torn down, having closed a few years ago, is a reminder to us that God graciously led us to be meeting here, but he, not, he wasn't necessarily going to keep available forever the option of meeting in the movie theater. Sometimes he tells you he's going to bring you out of where you are to something else. And that something else may be more challenging, may be more difficult, may force you to rely more and more on his spirit's leading and guiding. And you may say, well, couldn't I go back? And he says, no, you can't. I'm taking off the training wheels. I'm leading you, God says, out of bondage. I'm leading you into freedom. Going to be talking about, he also is leading them into battle because the inhabitants of this land he's bringing them to, even if they got the memo that they were supposed to leave, not all of them decided to behave. Back then, some people didn't like self-deportation either. But God is leading his people ultimately into eternal life, the eternal kind of life, eternal life that goes on forever, but that starts now. but we can't miss the fact that it does go on forever. And if God is giving us this option of following Him, and if He is telling us that there are consequences to not following Him, if He in fact is the Lord of the universe, and we believe that He is, then we have to do business with the fact that he doesn't seem to be giving us another choice. In many ways, when we take communion, as we're about to do, we remind ourselves of the stakes of what we believe. The fact that we are saved by Jesus' shed blood on our behalf reminds us that As we read in Leviticus, without shedding blood, there is no remission of sins. The writer of Hebrews makes it clear that Jesus' shed blood was necessary to atone for our sin. For us to be able, as Paul describes here in Romans 8, for us to be able to be led by the Spirit, to have the Spirit dwelling within us. God had to deal with what keeps us from Him.
is now no condemnation for those who are, though, in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the life-giving Torah of the Spirit set us free from the death-dealing Torah of sin. I'll invite you to stand with me as we recite together the creed. After that, I'll invite you to come forward and uh, take the elements back to your seat with you. We'll partake of them together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. <clears throat> 